Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of things we found out about adulthood that weren't true. At first, we discussed, like, examples, like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to eat candy all the time. But then it's true, like, when you grow up, there's things, like, when you're younger, like, I'm never going to take naps again. Then you're like, actually, naps are the best thing about adulthood. Um, If you don't nap, God bless you. But hello, my name is Sarah. I also get to be one of the pastors here at Calvary Young Adults, and I'm excited to be with you guys and get to share the word of God with you. Um, I don't know what your week has looked like. But mine um, has been needing encouragement. So when I got to go, I know, imagine that, especially in adulthood, post-holidays, needing encouragement. But what was beautiful about going to the text that we're going to look at tonight is that I'm sure that as we find it, you're going to find encouragement. Like Brian said, when we worry, we actually discover that we have need. And what we get to talk about tonight is going before God, who actually knows our needs. And that is found through the habit of prayer. But before we get there, and we open our Bibles back up to Matthew 6, I just wanted to give us some context. I'm a big context person when it comes to scripture. Part of that was going through seminary, and they're not just like, no, don't read a few chapters of context. Like, read all the context that exists, and then, like, do history on it. But I won't won't bore you with that tonight. What I want to suggest is that when we look at the Word of God, And we're looking at different passages that we'd zoom out just a little bit. And in this case, we're just going to zoom out the chapter before Matthew 6. This is Matthew 5. And where we find ourselves, including what we talked about last week, is actually in the middle of one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're asking, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Um, I actually brought a visual for you. It's because he gave this sermon literally on the top of a mountain, that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. So those of you who went to Israel, we've been there. We went to that like teeny tiny basilica way on top. It was cool. We got to worship. Tim had to pay a nun like $20 to allow us to worship. No shade on another denomination, but it was, it was great. And we got to meditate on the words of Christ that come in this chapter 5 and 6. What Jesus spoke about from the top of that mountain as he was talking to this crowd of thousands of people who were curious about who he was. He had been traveling, he had been on mission, and the word about who Christ was and his teachings had taken hold of the hearts of people all throughout the region. Some of them were curious about whether he was actually the son of God, and some just thought he was a really good teacher. And we find that both are true. But in this sermon, in chapter five, he teaches his followers what it means to be blessed. And this word for blessed actually can be translated as being happy. Like, it's okay. Like, in the Christian life, yes, there is sacrifice and there is suffering, but there's also happiness and joy promised when we follow the heart of God. So he's talking about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for theirs is the kingdom, for they, are, they shall see God. And he encourages his followers what it means to be salt of the earth to bring out the God taste in our communities around us, to remind people of this good creator, what it means to be light in dark places. But then he talks about some harder things. He talks about murder and adultery and theft, but not necessarily in the physical way. You see, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount isn't just our actions in the physical, but it's the posturing of our heart. And he's smart. Like, Jesus is so smart. Like, I love actually calling Jesus smart because we don't often hear that, right? Like, he's wise, but he's also smart. Like, he's the creator of the universe. And he knows that in order to actually follow him, 
In order to actually have a heart that wants to pursue the things of God, we have to build habits and disciplines in our lives that will actually lead to the blessing and the peace that he's talking about. So before we even dive back into things, I just want to start with this. Looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we learn this. Blessing and peace comes from trusting and obeying God. Like when he speaks something, I want to be the type of people, the type of woman that obeys it. That when God speaks, I pay attention. Even if it's something that I have to question, even if it's something that I have to do some research on and go to some commentaries or even read further in context, but when God says something, I want to obey it. And that's where we pick up. Pastor Brian Howard got to speak last week on the habit of fasting. And I chose that term really carefully, the habit of fasting. Because just like prayer, there's never been a command to prayer fast. But instead, it's assumed of the life of a believer. That there are certain regular practices. That's what a habit is. It's a regular practice that in this case, he tells his believers to do in order to combat the ills and anxieties of the world and bring us closer to God. Because like we've talked about, worry exists. Like, I am a chronic warrior. Like, I love it. I don't love it, but I'm really good at it. <laughs> I've spent my whole life worrying about things that I feel like I, if I only had control of, would make my life easier. And I'm almost 29 years old. And I've learned that the things that I feel like I can control are actually out of my control. So when God says that there's ways for us to actually understand who it is we bring our troubles before and how to actually receive peace, I'm paying attention. Last week we talked about fasting. We're actually starting a little bit backwards. We're like moving through the passage in reverse. So it actually begins not with fasting, but it begins with giving, and then it talks about prayer and fasting. So we're going to move backwards, and we're going to look at this kind of sister attribute of fasting. But here's the deal. As we're starting, I'm going to say fasting one more time. As we're looking at fasting, fasting without prayer is just not eating. Like, did you know that? Like, in Scripture, this practice, this habit of fasting is mentioned almost 70 times, and almost always it's coupled with and prayer, fasting and prayer, or it's just implied that when you fast, you will pray. Because here's the truth. You can have a fruitful prayer or prayer life without fasting, like, you could pray without fasting, but you cannot have a fruitful fast or fasting without prayer. That's why it's so important that even as we begin these 21 days, we actually look, look at what does it mean to pray? What does Jesus actually call us to do as we give up, as we kind of starve the flesh to feed the spirit? How do we actually feed the spirit? And the answer is through prayer. And like fasting, prayer is a supernatural element a supernatural element. And like Brian said last week, I long for us to be a community that when we hear about these supernatural things like prayer and fasting, we would lean into the might and the mystery of that, knowing that it's meant to be that, supernatural, like very natural to us, that we as followers of Christ, as children of God, would not shy away from these things, but they would be familiar to us. They'd be an innate part of who we are, that when we have trouble in our life, when decisions need to be made, when breakthrough needs to come, these would be our first responses, that we would know that the supernatural is part of who we are. Because the truth is, too, we cannot separate the physical from the spiritual. We are told in Scripture, what is bound in heaven will be bound in earth. What is bound in earth will be bound in heaven. We are not just souls and bodies. These things mingle 
because that's how Christ and the Lord before the beginning of time made it to be, that our actions actually have spiritual repercussions and our spiritual, our spiritual actions can have physical repercussions. Our habits matter, like our habits matter. And if we're not moving towards something, we're often moving away from it. And let, us that, let that not be true of how we treat Christ and the things he calls us to. It matters how we think. It matters how we use our bodies, how we speak, how we use our time. I'm reading through a book right now um, called Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's not, it's not a religious book, but he has some excellent points when it comes to even just our neurology, this like good neurology that Christ has made and put inside of us. And he says this, every action you take is a vote for the person you wish to become. Every action you take. And you see, Jesus knows this too. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about these inner realities of our hearts and our minds that are not only shaped by our outward actions, but vice versa. Sometimes we need to lead with actions, to lead with habits in order to restore our inward thoughts, feelings, emotions, and spiritual realities. So those of us who wish to know life and peace amongst an anxious world, to have hope and to have endurance, we have to understand that we must be willing to embrace the supernatural. So let's open to Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. As it starts here, Jesus says this, and he says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. So this is similar when he's talking about fasting. There's no like, okay, guys, this is what prayer is. He's more of like, he goes straight to the how and the when. When you pray, because again, this isn't just a command. This is assumed in the life of the believer. When you pray. So we're going we're to learn about the what, we're going to learn about the why, but Jesus is going to jump right into the how, how you are meant to pray. But before we get there, let's just assume, for definition's sake, when he says pray, it means talking to God. It means talking to God. There's many different types of prayer we're going to see in Scripture. There's intercession. There's petition, right? But tonight, we're really going to focus on the prayer that he offers us. So just when you hear prayer, think talking to God. So Christ assumes prayer of his people, not by law or obligation. This is not in the Ten Commandments. There's no one else. But again, it's exemplified by faithful believers, including himself. Like Christ would steal away to pray to the Father, even though he was the Son of God. But when he talks about the hypocrites, this is a word you might be familiar with, meaning like not integrous. Like you say one thing and you do another thing. But like going back, let's learn actually what a hypocrite actually is. This is a word that comes from the Greek definition for like an actor someone who wears different face or masks when they're on stage, when they're pretending to be someone else. Um, and I just wanted to kind of give you a visual. So when you think about a hypocrite, this is its origin. You'd go and you pretend to be someone else in front of other people. Then, of course, you take your mask off, go home, and you're just an average person, right? So when we think about this word hypocrite, it just means two-faced. And not only that, but it has this like performative element. And that's what Christ is talking about. Like, don't be like the hypocrites in this performative way, getting up and praying for the sake of others. Because prayer does have a corporate element. I was talking with our worship team about this. When we sing and declare and plead for God, even in music, like that's what we do together. And when we pray before service, like that's a beautiful thing. But what Jesus is implying is that there's also a starting point in your individual spirituality that comes from an intimate prayer, an intimate and integrous prayer before God. He continues this way, but when you pray, 
Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is pointing to that the starting place of prayer is spiritual intimacy. It's that time alone with the father. And that there's actually a reward when we begin to desire being known by God more than we desire to be known by other people. That that actually keeps our heart in a place of integrity rather than hypocrisy. Then we, when we go to pray with other people, we're not thinking, okay, who's sitting around me? We're thinking, wow, we get to talk to the Father together. And there's actually a practical that Jesus is trying to give us through this. So I'm just going to give us a practical when you're thinking like, okay, how do I even pray? Like, what does this look like? First, Try dedicating an intimate space to God. Like studies actually show that when we have like one thing we do in one space, we like consecrate that space, we're more likely to do it and actually be focused in that space. And we totally blew that with COVID, right? Because you went home and like, well, you stayed at home and your room became like not only your office, but your study and your yoga studio, and the place that you watched movies, and the place where you sometimes hung out with friends, and like the place that you ate a lot of your meals, because you're like, wow, I could do everything here now, right? So if you're having trouble sleeping, maybe ask yourself, how many things do I do in my room? Like, what, is this actually a space for rest? Is this a space for studying? Is this a space for prayer? Because our brain actually has these associations. So if you're having a hard time focusing, what I would suggest is find a place where you're like, this is my prayer spot. This could be an armchair in your room. For me, it's actually every time I get in my car when I'm alone, I'm like, this is my space to pray when I drive to work, when I come back from work. It could be a route that you walk around your neighborhood where it's just you, you put your AirPods in, you listen to some worship, and you talk to God. It could be a swing at the park by your house, just like find that place. And it will be amazing how we focus when we actually can give one purpose to one location. I tried to do this thing. I did this a couple years ago where every morning I'd get up. And before I started my day, I would get out of bed and I would just hit my knees. Next to my bed, I would say, Lord, this is the most important thing that I'm going to do today. This is the most important thing I'm going to do today. And all I would pray was, Lord, would you pilot me today? Would you direct my steps today? And then I go on my day, and that's not the only place that I prayed, but it helped set me up. Like, I knew when I woke up, the first thing I was going to do was pray, even if I was half asleep, even if I was trying to figure out what I wanted to pray about for that day. But it just helped me get in this routine where then my heart posture through the rest of the day actually leaned more towards prayer instead of away from it, because I had set myself up with this habit. So it's not to say you can only pray in one singular location, but what Christ is saying, find that spot where it can just be you and the God where there's no distractions, and keep searching until you, you can find that spot. So what else does Jesus have to say about prayer? Verse 7, he says this again, and when you pray, being like really driving the point home at this, at this stage, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So religion, <laughs> not unlike today, and in Jesus' cultural context, people like really put on a show. Like a lot of the Greco-Roman religions, they thought the more that they went out in front of their gods, dressed a certain way, gave these lengthy speeches, the more favor and honor that they would occur from these gods. And like, like the God of Israel, like the God that we serve, he is so other than any other God, any other religion we can put up against him. He's so different because he desires the sincerity of our hearts. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, when you pray, 
Instead of being like the pagans who feel like they can win their gods over with their many words, instead shoot God straight. Like be respectful, like show reverence towards God, but like he can handle it. Be clear with God. Because Jesus is not, he's pointing out that like the quantity and the flourish of your words matters less than the sincerity of them. The sincerity of your heart. Because what that actually reveals is that it's less about being confident in your own ability to pray or the goodness of your heart and more about coming humbly before God. See, one of my favorite examples of prayer in scripture comes from Luke 19, and this is the basic setup. There's two men and they're praying. One is a Pharisee. He is like the religious elite. He's a teacher within the Jewish community. This is a man that would be highly respected because he was righteous. He was holy. He did all the things right. And he comes out on the street corner and basically prays like this. He goes, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, that I am not a murderer, that I'm not an adulterer, that I am not a sinner like this tax collector. Cut to the tax collector that's like sad. And then he literally was like, I fast twice a week. And he's just basically bragging about how righteous he is, right? He, he ends praying. And Jesus is telling this parable. And then it cuts back to the tax collector. And this is the tax collector's prayer. He says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Amen. And Jesus points to these two men and he says, guess who is accepted in glory? Guess who is the one that God welcomes within his kingdom? Because it's not the first man. It's the man who came humbly before him. The man who probably by all like means, if you're going to compare the works of their lives, actually was a sinner. Who probably ripped people off. Who took the Jewish people who were already oppressed and took their income and their finances, their means to support their family. Like tax collectors were hated in this culture because they were already beating down the beat down. So that's why, like, when you hear sinners and tax collectors, there's almost this, like, separate category around them. But he said, it's him. Because in the sincerity of his heart, he asked for mercy before God. He came quietly before God. So this is how we learn to pray. We dedicate an intimate space to God. And then we speak humbly and we speak clearly before God. Here are some prayers that I prayed this week, like, just this week. One, Lord, I need your help. Or my favorite version of that, which is just, help. Like, have you ever been in a conversation and you're just like, I have no idea what to do right now. I am overwhelmed. I had several of those this week. And I'm just, in my mind, I was just like, help God, help me, Jesus. Or just like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power of letting the Lord into those moments where you actually do need help. But that's all I can muster in that moment. And guess what? He provided help. Another prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me. Like, I take that prayer all the time, Lord, have mercy on me, or have mercy on him. Have mercy on her. Or thank you, Holy Spirit, for directing me. That's all. Simple prayers and eloquent prayers done in sincerity have the same effectiveness. So if you're sitting there, I was also thinking about all my, like, external processor friends who are like, oh, my God, how can I ever, like, edit down my prayers? And every time I talk to God, I kind of just, like, have to keep going, and it's a stream of consciousness. Maybe you don't talk fast, but you talk out loud. And I talk out loud, too. Um, It's not really, like, Jesus is not saying, like, okay, like a tweet, you have to pick, like, 240 characters or else, like, you're sinning. Like, again... It's about the posture. It's about the posture. And what's more, prayer is not dependent on the speaker, but it's dependent on the listener. Like, when Jesus is talking about, like, don't pray in front of other people, it's more along the lines of, like, if you're praying to others, then expect a response from others. 
If you're saying, God, help me, and you're like trying to impress the people around you, then you are sincerely praying more to them than you are praying to the God of the universe. So you can speak eloquently. I have friends who love Jesus, and I wish I had like a booklet of their prayers because they're so beautiful, but they're sincere. And I believe that blesses God because it's coming from this place of purity and vulnerability before the Lord. Because it doesn't really have to do with the length. It's more about the intentionality. Don't fill your prayers with fluff. Like, that's not going to please God, and it's not going to impress others. And if it impresses others, those are not the others you want to impress. Because in the next verse, we're going to see that prayer actually helps us understand who this God is that we're coming before, and that he's already perfectly attuned to our needs. Verse 8, it says this, do not be like them. Do not be like the pagans. Do not be like the hypocrites. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Like, I had to reread this verse many times because I was like, dang, I don't live my life this way. Like, I come before God as if he doesn't know my worries, as if he doesn't know my cares. And I think about the song, which I will not sing to you, but the lyrics go, why should I worry? Like, why should I worry? God knows what I need. And I'm like, yeah, when I'm like worshiping to it. And then I stop and I'm like, I'm still very worried because <laughs> it's easier said than done. But I want to challenge myself and challenge us, like as a follower of Christ, I want to elevate the word of God to where I actually believe it. Like if Jesus says that your heavenly father knows what you need, I want that to change the way that I pray. I want that to change the way that I seek him and actually lean on his help. One biblical commentator put it this way. He says that this suggests that prayer for Jesus is not a means for a person to inform God about the things he does or he does not know. But by implication, prayer is a means for believers to know the Father in ways they would not have known without praying. I love that. Like prayer is not about informing God as if he is far off, but it's about imploring God as if he's near. As, a, as if we know that he's near, as if we know that he's able to help us. And guess what? If we don't know, we have an opportunity to experience that and to practice that and say, God, I want to know that you're near. Because the truth is we ask people for help when we feel like they're equipped to give it. I don't know about you, but when you walk into Target, I don't walk to like a random stranger in like a white t-shirt and ask them where the dish soap is. They might know, right? But there's a chance that you're just going to have a really weird interaction. No, what do we do? You go to the person in the red t-shirt with a Target badge because they know the store. They're like literally trained to help you, right? And the same is true of God. Like the more we know of God, his character, his heart, his reliability, the more we can understand who it is we're approaching and how to approach him. We simply don't narrate our lives or problems to God in prayer. We must believe that he is actually capable of responding and intervening. And we can only know this through practice and lived experience. Like I can testify to you that prayer has changed my life. It has moved mountains for me. It has healed relationships. Sometimes it's taken years, sometimes it's taken minutes. But I know that it's not by my work. It is by the one who knows me, the one who is able to help me. And like Brian said, this series is titled, Therefore Do Not Worry. Therefore do not worry, worry. Because spoiler, the end of this passage in Matthew 6, this is how it concludes. This is how the whole sermon concludes. Matthew 6, verses 33 through 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough 
trouble of its own. That last part is very true. It's true. Like, what if we actually let each day worry about itself? What we see here is that there's a connection to how much focus and energy we put into experiencing God and experiencing his kingdom, the presence of God in our lives and the peace we feel. Like how much we focus on things that are above, that are true, that are heavenly, that are good. And how much peace we feel. How much we're seeking God in our lives. Again, because Jesus being infinitely wise, he knows and he's giving this advice to his followers, to us. And he continues this way. He says, okay, I've talked about when you pray, when you pray. This is actually the response he gave his disciples. And he said, okay, how do we pray? And he uses this in his sermon. He says this, verse 9. This, then, is how you pray. You start this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, which is just another word for holy, holy be your name. See, through addressing God, it actually helps us center ourselves on who we're talking to. Again, we're not talking to anyone else. You're not talking to your neighbor, your dad, your mom, your best friend. Like, we are talking to the God of the universe who is holy which means he is whole, he is complete, he is completely good, he is completely wise, he is completely dressed, and he is completely unlike anyone else in the best way possible. And I think sometimes we get so routine, if you do pray, just being like, dear God, or like Father God, that I forget at least who I'm praying to, who I'm coming before in that moment. So what I want us to do, kind of for the rest of the message, is to do an activity together. Um, on your seats, we have graciously dropped, our prayer team actually has um, a piece of paper and it has the Lord's Prayer on it. So this prayer that we're gonna go through together and on the front has two different versions of the Lord's Prayer. One, NIV, that's the basic one, the one I'll be going over in the sermon. And on the right-hand side, it has a message translation. The message was basically a translation of scripture that kind of put things in more modern terms and I love it. It just like really clarifies what Jesus is saying. But as we go through this, I actually want to help us just highlight what are some of the attributes of the Lord's Prayer. Like what does this actually say about this God that we're praying to? So we're going to do an acrostic. If you don't know what that is, it is okay. Basically, an acrostic is when you spell a word vertically, and each letter has a nice sentence or a pair of words, and it's a memory tool. like helps you remember things. So... We're going to make an acrostic together. I'm going to let you guys just use your own handwriting, creative liberties. Um, but really the purpose of this is I want us to remember this. I want this to be a tool that you can take into your time with God as you pray, or even just to consider as you enter in a season of wanting to grow in your prayer life. So we're going to start this way. We're going to go back to the first verse. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. The first letter is P. I feel like we're on a game show. The first letter is P. <laughs> I watched Real Fortune for the first time in like 15 years, so it was fun. Um, and it stands for paternal love. And I say paternal, so paternal just means fatherly, because I think I can miss this. Like there's a reason that God self-describes as father. And I don't know what your relationship with, the, with your father looked like growing up, whether it was very excellent and you feel good and safe and your, your dad was present, or if it was the complete opposite of that. And calling God Father maybe isn't comfortable for you. But I think it's good, even in our prayer life, to let that be redeemed. To know that we are praying to a parent that loves us. 
to a God that loves us, who says, I am a present father. I care for you. Every need that you have, I already know. And I'm listening, and I'm not going to leave you and forsake you. So to meditate, who am I praying to? And here's an example of a prayer that I would pray out of that section. I would say, Lord, you are my father who cares for me. You are wholly different from all others, not like earthly fathers who may have failed. But you are strong, you are protective, and you desire my best. You are never absent. You are always present with me, always working together for the good of those who love you. Lord, your name alone can bring healing. So how would you address the Father? How would you address God? Let's not let his name become mundane. So as we consider that, just think, how would I address God? Next, verse 10, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So next letter is R. It's ruler of heaven and earth. He's saying, God, not only are you ruler in heaven, you are not far off, but you are near. And not only that, but you are in control. I am not in control of my life. You are. Might I find relief in that? That your will for me in this whole earth is good. Would I see the beauty of your kingdom? Help me to be a part of your plans on theirs. If you've ever felt discontent because you're like, man, this earth is broken, that means that you understand that there is a heaven, that there is something greater, that God actually came, that Jesus came so we can know restoration on this side of eternity. So would this part of the prayer compel us when we pray to ask, what would you pray in light of knowing God is ruler of heaven and earth? Like, what do you want to pray from heaven down to earth? What kind of healing, what kind of joy, what kind of restoration do you want to see in your life, in your community's life, in the world today? as we consider that God is king above, that his will will be done, and he has a great plan to redeem heaven and earth. So our ruler of heaven and earth. Next, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. I love the version on the handout that you have. It's a little, I'm like, this might be a little contextual. It says, give us three square meals a day. It's very specific. But when we, when we hear daily bread, this kind of has two different meanings, right? Like there's the physical food that we need, but then there's the concept that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. So when we hear bread, this actually just isn't in the physical. This covers all provision. So the next letter is A, all that you need, all that you need. And like I said earlier, I love prayer because it reminds me that I'm in need, we're in need. Prayer reminds me that even if I think I have everything under control or on lock, like I need God. And I love this too because the word here daily, there's like an older translation of this where daily actually can be translated as tomorrow's bread. So it's coming before God and not just begging him, Lord, would you provide enough for today? Like in that nervous, almost anxious, like will you give me enough for today? This prayer is kind of implying that it's like can you not only give me enough for today, but Lord, you're going to give me enough for tomorrow, so I'm going to let that worry about itself. Like, God, when I come before you, I can actually ask for provision. So this is kind of the part to ask, like, what are you fasting for? What are you praying for? Like, what is the breakthrough in your life that you want? Like, what is the hope or healing or direction or provision, like, in your job? Is it in your relationship? Is it healing in your family? Is it that financial provision where you're like, God, I actually need to know what I'm going to eat tomorrow? 
Like, what is it? Because God is saying to us, I can supply every need that you have according to my glorious riches. What is it that you need, my child? Because I'm going to give you enough for each day. So let him know your needs, your physical needs. Lord, heal my body. Provide the food I need. My spiritual needs, Lord, please grant me hope and the ability to overcome sin. My mental needs, Lord, please meet me in my anxiety and give me wisdom as I plan for my future. My emotional needs, Lord, please heal these emotions in my family because this is unbearable. It's saying, Lord, you are big enough to supply them all. No more and no less than exactly what I need for today. So as we consider this part, as we consider, wow, God, could you really give me all that I need? Like, let's ask ourselves, what provision are you asking of God today? Like, what is it that you need from God today? Because he's offering. Next, verse 12, the prayer goes on. And, I f- and forgive us our debts, Lord. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys are actually in debt. We have a lot of students in here. Um, we know that debt does not feel good. Debt does not feel good. Amen. Debt does not feel good. Like how it feels so good once our debts are paid off, right? But the truth is, we're not talking about like a financial exchange necessarily. Like this could be true that if someone like owes you debt, you need to extend forgiveness. But it's more of like those emotional digs, those transgressions. Like with sin, we actually start to carve out this debt against God. And when others sin against us, like we know how that feels where it's like, I'm not close to that person more because they've kind of accrued a debt by the way that they've treated me. And maybe we, won't, we wouldn't name it that, but that's how it feels like that weight, that it's like, well, until they pay that back, I don't know if we're going to be cool, right? Or maybe that's like how we're feeling towards God. God, I have too much debt. Like, I, I can't come before you until I feel like I've worked that off. But here's the beauty of this. And here's the next letter. It's why, and it, it stands for yearning for forgiveness, yearning for forgiveness, and you're like, oh, okay, Sarah, you really needed a why letter. I kind of did, but here's the deal. When we consider forgiveness, I think what the pitfall of a believer could be is once we're forgiven, then we're like, okay, I'm cool. Like, I don't need to take my sin seriously anymore. Or like, we're not really in a place, even maybe in the modern church, where like confession is a popular thing. We're like, oh my gosh, what is this? Because it's scary. Like, we don't want to continually come before God and others and be like, I messed up again. Because there's the truth is, like, Christ did die so that we can live in eternity with God and not let the sin of our past or our present separate us from God. So our debt has been paid, but as long as we're alive and breathing until we get to eternity, like, we're still going to have debt or, like, accrue little debts against people and others. Though we are covered in the righteousness of God, though he sees, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. There is repercussion to our sin, right? And the moment we stop understanding that we have received forgiveness, we're going to stop extending it. Like when others sin against us, how easy is it to be like, well, I know I'm forgiven, but like, I don't know if I could forgive you. I don't know if we could be cool until you actually make it up to me, until you change your behavior. Because the truth is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, some of us aren't even, like, good with God. We, don't, we have not accepted Jesus, and he's still going, I forgive you. Because forgiveness is not this, like, two-way street all the time. I think that's the misconception we have, right? That in order to forgive, someone has to come before you and make things right. Like, we can never make things right before God. We just can't. That's why Jesus had to come and die for us and take the punishment that we deserved. 
So when we consider forgiving those who have maybe accrued debt against us, who have hurt us, who have betrayed us, we have to understand that we actually have the privilege of extending forgiveness to them. And it actually has nothing to do whether they receive it or not, or we ever get right with them, or we reconcile against them. To those who have been forgiven much, we're asked to forgive for our own sake, for our own sake. A prayer of yours can be like this, Lord, would you forgive me of my selfish heart? The ways that I've spoken about others that do not honor you, help me not hold my shirt the shortcomings of others against them. Help me to release them from owing me anything for the pain that they've caused. Help me understand that I need forgiveness as much as they do. Let's not grow tired of the concept that we've been forgiven of much and God will continue to forgive us of our debts. So the question I ask you is what do you need to let off the hook or who do you need to let off the hook in your heart? Like, who do you actually need to see and go, actually, the best gift I can give this person is forgiveness. Doesn't mean I'm going to forget what happens, but I'm actually going to unburden myself from holding on to that unforgiveness. And even if that doesn't mean reconciliation. Verse 13. Not only do we thank God for giving our debts and forgive those who have caused debt against us, he says in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I love this one, and the letter for this is E, and it's empowerment over sin. Empowerment over sin. You see, by the grace and mercy, God tells us not that we'll never be tempted again, but that we'll, there will always be a way out. There will always be a way out, both in the ultimate sense, like I talked about, where Christ has made a way that sin would not separate us from God, but also the immediate that we are filled by the Holy Spirit so we would not wage war against sin alone. Because again, we will fall short. See the previous verse. Like, we are going to fall short. But what if we were people that actually prayed proactively about sin and temptation? Right? Like, what if we prayed protection over ourselves and the enemy before the day even began? Like, we were real with ourselves and said, Lord, I struggle with this. Like, I struggle with the way that I speak to my parents. I struggle with lust. I struggle with pride and greed. I actually need help with how I'm spending my money because it is not honoring to you. And instead of just being a victim of sin and being like, whoop, it happened again, we would get on top of it and say, okay, Lord, actually, and you were telling me that by the power you've put in me through the spirit, I could say, Lord, give me a way out. Give me a way out. And not only that, but Lord, would you protect me from the schemes of the enemy? I had a pastor in college that before we went home for the summer would actually have us stop and consider what, is, what are going to be your pitfalls when you go home? Because as some of you may know, when you go back to your parents' house, you might like maybe a little bit revert into being a teenager. Um, like the things that were hard at home are going to be hard again. Or maybe there's sins of your past that will just like spring up because it's the location, right? Like certain sin gets triggered by like the place that we commit it. And it would be unwise to live our lives again as if we were blindly going in the dark, going, I'm just, I don't know what's happening. I just keep falling into this and saying what Jesus is saying in this moment. Lord, would you deliver me from this? Would you actually protect me against the specific thing? Would you bring other people into your prayer life to say, I'm going to walk with you so that this wrestle wouldn't be forever? So our question here is, what do you long to be delivered from? 
What do you want to get out ahead of? Before you even start your day, what's the thing when your feet touch the ground, you say, not today, Satan. Like truly, not just in jest, but like, no, like not my house, not at my work, not my friends, like even interceding for other people, like you cannot have your way. I belong to the Lord. And Lord, would you free me from the things that bind me? Because that is ultimately his heart for us. And that's the conclusion of the prayer. So we could say, amen. But if you look at your acrostic, you're like, you kind of know what the word is going to be, right? Right? If you were on Wheel of Fortune, you would win. Um, and that, but that's the prayer. And there's other versions of this prayer that talk about, you know, and God, yours is the glory and kingdom forever and forever. Amen. But in this sermon, Jesus isn't done. He has two more verses. It's going to go through quickly. In verse 14, it says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive you. And that kind of seems random, right? Like he's like going through this prayer. He's like, this is how you should pray. Like, and you're like, yes, Jesus. And then he's like, by the way, if you don't forgive other people, you're not going to get forgiven either. And you're like, what? But this whole sermon that he's talking about talks about this. It's having the right heart posture. That's your R, right heart posture. Because the concept of making our hearts right before God is actually what leads us into fruitful prayer. Like God does not want us to make hypocrites of ourselves and be like, well, I hate my neighbor and I'm actually super mad at my boss and I'm not extending forgiveness against, against that girl, but God, would you help me? God is like, no, you are not meant to live life as an individual. I put you in community to bless and be a blessing. And I want you to be sincere with others and sincere towards me. He doesn't want us to fake us. He wants us to understand the sweetness and freedom that comes from being forgiven and also extending forgiveness. And what we can take from this is this. Unforgiveness will hinder your prayer life. It will hinder your prayer life. It will actually also like wear away at you as a person. It will make you bitter, resentful. You won't, not only it's like, oh, you won't be fun to be around. It's like you're not going to see God for who he is or others for who they are. So we need to lean into forgiveness and understand the hope and joy and the sweetness of knowing forgiveness. So even before we pray, sometimes before I pray, especially when I'm praying for like certain people that I'm upset with, um, I have to pray something like this. Lord, search my heart. If there's any unforgiveness, like would you show it to me? And guys, it is often there. Like even today I was like, I'm fine. And I was like, Lord, show me if there's any, oh gosh. Like, oh my gosh. And then I'm like, how do I even reconcile? And the Lord's like, I wanna help you. I want to help make your heart right so that when you come before me, there's nothing between us. So when we pray, Jesus points out a rhythm. He points out this map to us. And you could either pray the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with memorizing the Lord's Prayer and contemplating and working through it. Or you can follow the attributes we discovered. Maybe in just pausing, you know, today is like, okay, Lord, I'm going to focus on your paternal love. The fact that you are a good father, unlike any other father. Maybe, maybe tomorrow it's, Lord, what does it mean that you are actually ruler of heaven and earth? How can I find comfort in that? How can I trust you that you're above all? God, that you will provide all that I need. It's okay to come before God and say, Lord, I have needs. Would you help me? Lord, would you help me yearn for forgiveness? Would you actually bring to mind someone, Lord, that I need to forgive in this moment? Also just bask in the fact that you forgave me. Maybe it's empowerment over sin. Maybe tonight it's just like, Lord, I actually need to shoot you straight and I need help with this. Would you give me power that when I go home tonight, I actually don't fall into sin, that you would actually rescue me, that I would proactively pray against the scheme of the enemy to keep me from you. 
And then lastly, which I would say honestly, maybe do first, um, is just the right heart posture. Lord, is there anything in my heart that I'm holding against another person or even holding against you in this moment? Because this isn't a formula, but it is an example that Jesus himself gives to uncover the heart of prayer, God's heart of prayer. And it's ultimately, we just want to walk away knowing that prayer is a blessing because we are secured by God's love in that. Like the more we pray, the more we experience God's love. And this can only come from practice. It can only come from experience. So, Ben, you can make your way back up. But I just want to leave you with this. God is better than we know. And he is bigger than we know. And again, I've seen God move mountains through my prayer life. When I've been thousands of miles away from people praying for their salvation, when broken relationships have just seemed impossible, and I'm in the middle of a season where I'm like, God, I need you to move again. And I'm so tempted to worry, but with you, I just want to lean into the supernatural power that comes through prayer and fasting and say, God, not by my strength or my power, but by yours. I'm in need. Prayer reminds us that we're in need, and that is okay because we get to find the creator, the one who can give us everything that we need. And God gave us prayer as a response to that. So I think the best thing I can do as we conclude um, is actually I'm just going to give us a couple minutes to do just that. We're going to pray. When I say we are, I'm just going to give you time by yourself in the quiet with some gentle underscoring um, to talk to your father who loves you, who's able. If there's like a part of that verse where you're like, I'm just going to hone in on this piece, then do it. If it's that simple prayer of God, have mercy on me, then do it. But come with sincerity. Deal with the unforgiveness that is in your heart. And come with expectancy that the Lord can actually move in power and might in your life from a place of love. Lord, thank you for prayer. God, thank you that you are good to us. Even when we don't deserve it, that's the whole gospel. God, thank you that you are a kind father, that you love when your children come before you. And ask, Lord, for your strength to be shown in their lives. Lord, would you show us what it means to be free in forgiveness? And Lord, also dependent on you for everything we need day by day. Help us to not worry because you are strong and present and near. Thank you, Lord, that you hear the prayers of your children.